Hey, it's Stu with Bitcoin and financial independence and a lot going on in the financial world in the last week or so with regional banks having issues come back to the surface and potentially looking at more bank failures, including PacWest, Western Alliance Bancorp, and Metropolitan Bank. All of their stocks dropped like a rock this week, and it seems like their days might be numbered. So real quick, to recap the cause of all of this banking crisis, the government issues bonds. They sell debt, and they pay interest to the bondholders. And the bonds that were sold in the last year or two have now been devalued because interest rates went up. Banks bought bonds that have lower interest rates now and that have long-term durations, so they have a lower face value compared to new bonds that pay 5%. Old bonds pay 1% or 2% or something like that. So why would you buy the old bonds when you can just buy a new bond and make twice as much interest or more? And so to buy and sell these old bonds, you can either take them to term, which can be any number of years, up to like 30-year treasuries, or you can just hold on to them until they go to maturity. But if you are a bank having liquidity problems and you are being forced to sell, you're selling at a loss. So anyone that bought bonds in 2021 and maybe somewhat last year is underwater, probably about 20%. Some people are saying that this is intentional, that 30 years ago, there were over 10,000 banks in America. Today, it's about 4,000 banks. The big banks are consolidating power and control. Uh, the top 10 U.S. banks control over 65%. Of deposits in the country and the other 4,000 have 35% of total deposits in this country. Some people think that when all these little banks fail, we will only have the big players left and they will introduce a central bank digital currency. There will not be much of a fight put up against this from regional banks or smaller banks. There will not be a lot of competition and it will just be kind of forced upon you. So that's something I'm seeing. Whether it's intentional or not, I can't say, but it is interesting to note that gold hit a record high this past week as well in response to this banking crisis. Uh, people are seeing that as a safe haven. Obviously, Bitcoin has been somewhat rising, bouncing between 27000 and 30000 But to continue on with the banking issues, what's interesting is that the FDIC only has $200 billion in it, in its insurance fund. This is the bank insurance that every bank has where they say your deposits are insured. And as long as your account balance is less than $250,000. The problem is that $200 billion in this insurance fund is not enough because from what I read, there's over $10 trillion in uninsured deposits. So if they had to cover up losses from bank failures, it's going to be through money printing. We're just going to have to see if there's any more bank contagion going on and how much money from that $200 billion that the FDIC already has allocated gets used up and if they have to print any more to make depositors whole. And by now, it's old news that First Republic Bank failed about a week ago, and I found some interesting things about this bank. They gave Mark Zuckerberg a mortgage in 2012. The interest rate on his mortgage was 1.05%. That's extremely low. The average at the time was 3.5% for 30-year mortgages. So how we got a 1.05% mortgage is beyond me. I know sometimes it's cheaper to get a 15-year mortgage. Maybe he got a 10-year mortgage or something. Who knows, but it seems suspect to me. It seems like catering to the elite. And the only kind of redeeming quality to this is that he probably paid millions for his house. I believe he bought up most of his block as well. So if he was buying these big expensive homes, even a 1% interest rate on a large mortgage can still be a good 
cash flow. It's just not that big of a percentage in relation to what you normally see, which makes it just seem a little bit fishy how we got a rate so low. Now, First Republic Bank got bought by JP Morgan. A few things about this. The FDIC backed up $13 billion in losses and is offering $50 billion in financing. Uh, JP Morgan is taking on a bit more than $100 billion in deposits and $229 billion in assets. The acquisition is a gain of $2.6 billion for JP Morgan and should add about $500 million in annual profits for them. JP Morgan Chase is the largest bank in America and they have over $2.4 trillion in deposits. And the FDIC offered to cover 80% of any losses on the residential and commercial real estate loans that might occur in the next seven years from the portfolio of assets that they picked up from First Republic Bank. Now, here's another rule that was bypassed. There's a law that says if a bank controls more than 10% of U.S. deposits, you cannot acquire another bank. But this was bypassed for J.P. Morgan, which now controls about 16% of national deposits. So it's funny how the government and the regulators turn their head the other way and just let this go through to backstop this bank. Also of interest is that before this bank failed, they borrowed over $60 billion from the Fed's discount window. They borrowed over $13 billion from the Bank Term Funding Program, which is an emergency lending program created by the Federal Reserve back in March to provide emergency liquidity to U.S. depository institutions. That's from Investopedia. So this program is created to support depositors by making additional funding available to eligible institutions to help assure that banks have the ability to meet the needs of their depositors. This program offers loans of up to one year in length to U.S. banks, saving associations, and credit unions and other depository institutions that pledge U.S. treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and other qualifying assets as collateral. This program only lasts one year and is set to expire in March of next year unless it's renewed. So they borrowed $13 billion from there, $60 billion from the Fed's discount window, and $28 billion from Federal Home Loan Bank, and the bank still died. That's over $100 billion that they borrowed to shore themselves up, and it still did not work. Moving on, this is a random fun fact I came across from a post on Twitter. Pennies used to be 95% copper. Today, they are only 2.5% copper, and then they are mixed with zinc, which is a cheaper metal. The thing of interest to me is that the government also abandoned the copper standard, not just the gold standard. Kind of interesting. Uh, another big deal that's coming up is the government debt ceiling showdown. This is pretty much political theater. It has been raised 78 times. And most other countries with central banks don't have a debt ceiling. We do, though. And for it to change, it has to be done with Congress. And of course, the political parties are going to fight about how that's going to work. But if they default, that really would not bode well for the economy. Not sure all of the fallout that would come from that, but it's something to keep an eye on. Uh, this probably needs to be addressed by June 1st, or it's a lot of things are going to shut down, and the U.S.'s credit rating is going to get downgraded. So we'll keep an eye on what's happening there. Another interesting post I came across is that national debt in America has compounded at around 5.9% for the last 20 years and 6.5% for the last decade. This is a post by Dylan LeClaire. And if you compound this growth of debt out for 10 years, from 2023 to 2033, then America would have about 57 to $60 trillion in debt. Right now we have $31 trillion in debt. So it would double roughly about every 10 years or so. 2043 would see us slightly above $100 trillion in debt, and 2053 would have us approaching $200 trillion, maybe higher. 
By 2083, in 50 years, we would have over $1 quadrillion in debt. And I think I've mentioned this before, but everyone expects the stock market to roughly do 7 to 10% per year on average. And that is what it has done for the last 100 years. But this is where I get just kind of confused and dis I'm disillusioned by the stock market now. Because that is what it has done. I think that's even what it's doing this year so far. I think we're up like 5 to 8% or so. But it's just a mirage. It's just because money is devalued and money has to go somewhere and enough of it gets invested so that the stock market rises exponentially, roughly in line with how our debt is growing on that same exponential scale. But of course, with some other factors involved, like demographics and productivity gains by companies. So maybe you could say that over the last 20 years or so, Maybe the S&P's done 9%, so it's still doing better than the debt compounding at 6.5%, but not by much. And so your real return is actually much smaller than you would think. But anyway, I'm going to leave that topic there and blitz through a few more points. Dan Held made a great post about Bitcoin's three value propositions. The first value proposition of Bitcoin is that it is hard to seize. You have 12 to 24 words to a wallet. You can just memorize it, keep it in your head. You can do multi-signature. Uh, it's just very hard to confiscate it if you have decent basic security protocols in place. The second value proposition is that it has censorship-resistant transactions. And the third value prop is it has the most credible monetary policy on the planet. We know the schedule. We know how much Bitcoin there will be. We know when it will be issued, at what rate, at what speed. So that kind of transparency and predictability allows you to plan ahead a lot better than waiting around to see what the Federal Reserve will do. Because going back to all these bank failures, the Fed said, we are not going to raise rates. Inflation is transitory. We don't need to raise rates. And then all of a sudden, we raise rates at the fastest rate in history. So those three value propositions were an awesome, simple way to explain the value of Bitcoin. He made another great point on another post when he compared Bitcoin to gold. Gold has a $12 trillion market cap with zero merchant adoption. So why do people think Bitcoin can only have value if it's used for payments? Why can't it be a store of value as well? So the whole debate of gold versus Bitcoin, it's the same idea. It's just two different assets with slightly different properties, a physically relatively scarce asset and a digital absolutely scarce asset. Next point, and I need to look into this more, but Argentina is ditching the US dollar for Chinese yuan. I always feel like I say it weird, but the Chinese currency is now used for 48% of all cross-border payments, while the dollar is now just a percent or two below that at about 46% of all cross-border payments. Another random thing I'm going to touch on, Coinbase. If you use Coinbase, which I did as I got started, but now I prefer Swan, River Strike, even Fold lets you buy Bitcoin now. But those are all Bitcoin-only companies that are all reputable. Uh, Coinbase is being sued now for harvesting customer fingerprint data and also like your face face id that iphones have and probably androids too i don't know but they harvested that and that seems like an issue so that's something else to look into and be aware of and try to use some of the more reputable bitcoin only exchanges as mentioned and will be linked in the show notes finally i will share a quote from naval ravikant he says bitcoin is a tool for freeing humanity from oligarchs and tyrants dressed up as a get rich quick scheme this lands up so well with what i tell people all the time that I had gone to Bitcoin for the money, I stayed for the freedom. Bitcoin is not a get-rich-quick scheme in my mind. I'm down overall still, on average, but I'm getting close to break-even as the price continues to rise. But in my mind, Bitcoin is a get-free-quick scheme. 
You become free from surveillance, free from exclusive financial systems, free from arbitrary fees, free from censorship. So it really adds a new meaning to the phrase financial independence, which I'm going for. And how I plan to do that is kind of three ways. Skills, increasing my income through acquiring new and better skills, buying cash-flowing assets, yes, even dollars, just the more money I can make and the more assets I can buy, whether that be vehicles or property or whatever to rent out, whatever I can buy or create that cash flows, that is part of becoming financially independent. And then saving in Bitcoin, a technology that removes government from your money. All right, that's all I have for today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend. Remember, financial independence is doable, and I'll be back with you soon.